Live from the Bunkhouse Saloon in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada, this is Bunkhouse! The country was completely at odds with each other. There was a lot of acrimony going on. There were a lot of partisan stuff. It was right at the, the, the height of the most aborted and botched reconstruction from the Civil War ever. Everything was going wrong. And so they started in Washington Square Park in Chicago, Illinois, uh, literally guys and women sitting on, standing on soapboxes and debating the issues of the day. And they were so vitriolic, and they had so many things going on, they dubbed it, somebody dubbed it, Bug House Square, because the Bug House was like a mental hospital. Because they were nuts, but they were arguing the things of the day. Jump cut to the 50s, around 1952, same thing. The country's kind of polarized. People were very, I mean, not everybody knows this, but Franklin Delano Roosevelt was one of the most popular and least popular presidents ever. Half the country loved him, half the country thought he was the worst thing ever. And so we were kind of in a place where uh, the people were just really polarized. So Studs Terkel, who was a very famous in Chicago journalist, decided to reinvigorate the Bug House Square. Well, 2019, we're kind of there again, partisan. We talk at each other rather than to each other. Nobody's being persuasive, everybody's just screaming. And so David Kimmel, who is my co-editor of literate.com, and I decided that we would create a show that provided us an opportunity to have persuasive debate. Thus, Bug House. That's the show, that's the story, now you got it. What we have tonight is a very special December 23rd edition of Bug House. All three topics are all about the Christmas holiday season. The first topic that we will hear tonight is the war on Christmas, real or fake? And that will be debated by Jessica Pena and one of our bartenders at the Bug House, or at the Bunk House, rather, but it gets very confusing sometimes. One of our bartenders, Brandon Leopard. So that will be the first one that we hear. The second topic we're gonna to hear tonight is the spokesperson. The thing about Christmas is, generally there's the Jesus thing, right? Because it's his birthday, right? And then there's the Santa thing. So of those two figures, who's the best Christmas spokesman? Santa versus Jesus. And uh, maybe Charles Pierre will show up if he does not. If, if he does show up, that will be debated by David German, who you just met earlier, and Charles Pierre. If Charles Pierre does not show up, that will be debated by David German and the compendium of Joe James, Jessica Pena, and myself as that we are making it up on the spot. So we'll see how that goes. And then the final uh, is George Bailey, A Wonderful Life or a Miserable Failure. Classic holiday movie. We love it. Everybody loves It's a Wonderful Life. And that will be debated by myself and Joe James. Joe James, who flew all the way from Chicago, Illinois, to be here to do it. So. 
Christmas great again. We can finally say Merry Christmas again. Let's say it together. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas! What the hell does a war on Christmas even mean? Have you waged a war on a holiday? You don't. It's a complete farce, all fake, created as a political distraction, corporate push for consumers' culture, and quite frankly, Christmas, Christ, Jesus H. Christ, is a war on freedom. Nearly everyone celebrates Christmas to some degree. Nearly all my Jewish friends have a Christmas tree alongside their menorah. None of them are concerned about a war on Hanukkah. Most of my friends are non-religious, atheist degenerates who still celebrate Christmas. Hell, even my Satanist friend, ironically named Christian, celebrates Christmas with eggnog, gifts, and a few lines of white Christmas. How self-obsessed are the proponents of the war on Christmas that they overlook the fact that every culture in the history of mankind has celebrated the winter solstice. Everyone's celebrating. There's no war. There's no war on Christmas. We all have time off work or school to spend how we please. In America, we cannot turn a corner without being bombarded with troves of Christmas decor and Yuletide cheer. Frequent any store, school, park, or bar, and you'll find plenty of Christmas cheer to give your jolly a holiday jingle. The modern idea of war on Christmas has been solely perpetrated by conservative right-wing entertainment TV station, not a news media outlet, along with a few pariahs for the cause. Fox News, fair and balanced. The once news organization turned media tabloid created the modern war on the Christmas. In 04, O'Reilly ran a segment entitled Christmas Under Siege. He single-handedly brought back the idea that's been a political talking point for the last two decades almost. Along with Fox News, Trump as well as the American Family Association seem to be the sole harbingers for the supposed war on Christmas. They're the only true warriors left on the barren battlefield protecting the sanctity of the holiday. Just yesterday, Trump gave a speech to students where he proclaimed, they're all saying Merry Christmas again. That's the least I could do. While his presidency is imploding, he's gloating about winning a fictitious war. <laughs> the AAFA has been responsible for the boycott of several retail giants. Do you remember people absolutely losing their shit over the design on a goddamn disposable coffee cup? Yes, all that has been perpetrated by just a few voices in the echo chamber. It makes sense that the war on Christmas would be touted over the last decade to divert from the shortcomings of the conservative agenda. Just this year, instead of focusing on impeachment, Afghan papers, Epstein, or a slew of other national or global atrocities, Fox and the right-wing media have decided to revive the war on Christmas as a rally cry for a fledgling breed of staunch, privileged Christians who are willfully naive to the fact that the war on Christmas has nothing to do with Christmas at all. It's merely a distraction. Relax, boomers. No one's here to steal your cheer. Christmas has been a national holiday since 1870, and it's not going anywhere. With holiday retail sales projected to be over 700 billion in 2019, it's clear that the war on Christmas isn't about Christmas or religion at all. It's all about money. When the largest religious holiday of the year is also the largest retail holiday, it's hard to deny that money isn't the number one motivating factor behind the farce. It's no coincidence that millennials and Gen Z aren't concerned with the war, Drowning in student debt and dying from treatable diseases were just living day to day. I couldn't care less whether you store, boast, Merry Christmas, or Happy Holidays. I don't have money to shop for everyone. I'm just going to order some shit on Amazon Prime for my parents, and they'll know through material goods and a little gift note that's not even handwritten that I love them dearly. At a time that's supposed to be about charity and family, the majority of working class Americans are overburdened with work and the financial expectation of gift giving. Ensuring the word Christmas remains prominent ensures corporate profits. A brief history of the modern war on Christmas. First time the war on Christianity was used, it's used by none other than automobile tycoon Henry Ford in a pamphlet entitled The International Jew. 
Ford laments the Jewish menace as a threat to the American way of life. He complained that last Christmas, most people had a hard time finding Christmas cards that indicated in any way that Christmas commemorated someone's birth. Subsequently, Ford was the only American mentioned by name in Hitler's Mein Kampf and heralded by the Fuhrer as the only great American businessman who still maintains full independence. Should we really follow the rhetoric of an anti-Semitic billionaire? Asshole. <laughs> Ironically, several Christmas songs were written or co-written by Jewish people, including Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, The Christmas Song, yes, you know, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, Santa Baby, kinda creepy, Silver Bells, and White Christmas, just to name a few. This harkens back to my point. Non-religious people and people of other religions in America frankly don't give a shit what Christians do with their Christmas. They'll seize whatever opportunity it provides to have time off work or make some financial gain without caring who says Happy Holidays versus Merry Christmas. It seems conservative Christians would rather spend the holiday defending their privilege than actually doing something charitable or even Christian-like. The war was reignited again in 1958 when John Birch Society, another extremist right-wing group, opposed to communism, wrote, There Goes Christmas. This was the first time the war on Christmas term was coined. In it, the author claims that the Reds were trying to weaken the pillar of religion in our country. The main conduit for the dirty commies? Department stores. It's not surprising when the war reemerged in the 21st century that is again centered around department stores, large retails, retailers, marketable consumers' culture. Let's face it, all the rhetoric to support the war on Christmas has come from the mouths of bigots, racists, or people who frankly don't give a shit about 99% of the human population. It's echoed through the country and hailed by conservative Christians as an attack on their way of life. The idea of using the term happy holidays as a way to be more inclusive during the holidays is hearsay to these people. Let's look at some facts. In 2010, the percentage of people who described Christmas as strongly religious had actually risen 10% in the last 20 years. 97% of non-religious people who celebrate Christmas participated in other Christmas activities, including putting up a tree, visiting loved ones, or exchanging gifts. Christmas is the time of year for exactly that, spending time with the ones you love, regardless of religious orientation. Was this country not founded on religious freedom and the separation of church and state? Seems that the war on Christmas is just another straw man for the GOP to shake their fist at and victimize a majority of homogenous white Christians who claim that their freedoms are being attacked through the most sacred of holidays. If anything, the war on Christmas is a war on freedom. Freedom to do and say what you please in a country where you're watching these freedoms slowly disappear. Thank you. Brandon Leopard, I, and I didn't, I didn't say it before he started, started his piece, I just want to point out, this is his, he just popped his bug house chair first time he did the show. All right, that's Brandon. Kelly, did you absorb all that? This is, he used Harbinger, so big words, right? You're in. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, here's the counter, Jessica Pena. Yeah. Christmas. I don't want to follow that. But there is a war on Christmas. You said it yourself. It's about extremism. It's the left, the right. On the left side, extremism, the war against Christmas is because we want to be able to celebrate as well. But we don't need to necessarily celebrate with uh, the beliefs that the right has. And the right wants to make sure that they keep Christ in Christmas. So there is a war. And actually, 
the wars perpetrated, like you said, by the media, but it started even way before then with the Puritans. The Puritans didn't like what we're doing now, getting together, having a drink, being merry, and so they put a kibosh on Christmas. And they basically said, none of that, that's all sinful. And, and I mean, uh, so, so it was even way before uh, the religious media. And um, so both have a problem with consumerism as well, on the left and the right. And so, um, oh God, well, damn it, I don't want to fucking follow you. <laughs> and I'm a mom of three kids and I was out there shopping nonstop because I have to, because whether I believe in it or I don't believe in it, I still have to fucking do it because there has to be Christmas presents under that. Whether or not I'm on the left or on the right, there's a war because if I don't show up, Santa's not gonna either. So that's some shit. Thank you. Thank you, so, I mean, okay, so, Essentially, there is the left and the right, but I, I think more there's a war internally. And that has a lot to do with being a mom with having kids, because the war on Christmas is essentially, if I don't show up, he doesn't, Santa doesn't come, the kids don't get what they want. And, and not everybody can even, can even do that for their family. So you have a war in this saying, do I, do I get this gift for my kid and say that it's from Santa or is it from me? Because if I say it's from Santa, then the kid that's in his class that you know, doesn't have as great of a Christmas, then why didn't they get that from Santa? So there's just a bunch of internal problems. And then even religiously, um, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but my father is. And to, for Christmas time, it's a lot of internal and external battles between uh, what traditions you keep, which ones you pass on, is it uh, Christ, you know, celebrating his birthday, or is it um, is it just being together with a family and having your kids like lay under the Christmas tree and look at the lights? Like that's supposed to be what it's it's about, but it essentially is a war on Christmas for both. And so, <laughs> I, I you know, we're we're pretty much gonna say that Brandon kicked ass tonight. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm conceited. I'm gonna say Merry Christmas. I'm sorry I wasn't better prepared. Thank you. Thank you. Come on up. Come on up, Brandon. You know that's a first. We've had we've had people argue the other side of things, um, or argue the same point differently. But I don't think we've ever had anybody go. Fuck it, I can <laughs> At this point, we have an opportunity for three questions from the audience for either or both of our debaters. Anybody have any questions for either or both of our debaters? It's okay if you don't. He kicks so much ass, you guys. All right, so, Kelly, you've heard both the arguments. <laughs> you heard both the arguments. Um, uh, Brandon, you gave a wonderful performance tonight for your first piece. I enjoyed it very much, so Brandon. Brandon! Children all over the world. 
Okay. So now that we have that out of the way. Jesus WWJD pleases Christ, our very best spokesperson for this grand time of the year. Indeed, Jesus is the reason for the taking even longer extended social media break. Hell, quit your job while you're at it. 2020 should be fun employed season. I would like to propose an apt pop culture reference, even though I haven't seen the latest Star Wars yet. Maybe Ray is Jesus. Right? She's got the white robe and the long hair and everything. More importantly, she feels the power of the Force so intensely that she is the Force. Intuition and faith are a kind of superpower. The story at the end of any one year and the beginning of another is always a new hope. That's why the ball drops. This particular Death Star called 2019 is all too soon destroyed. And within the saga of Star Wars, Lord Vader, a.k.a. Santa, as our closeted leather playboy in the off-season, represents a tyrannical, fascist state wherein only the great benevolent judgment of one can bestow riches and lay a finger aside his nose to crush your windpipe. <laughs> we are pitted together here, uh, my friends and I, in a very real sense, to evaluate how it is possible for the light and the dark to get along inside and outside, all of us. So now we come to the point completely. Here it is. Jesus, the big J, haunts the center of a powerful story, right? Not everyone understands this, but it might benefit them if they did, especially heavy-duty churchgoers. Jesus isn't Jesus. Jesus is not one person. Jesus is many. Jesus is the path of a being inhabited by spirit. He represents any single person's struggles, thoughts, decisions, temptations, hardships, loves, and losses. Anyone and everyone's truest heart and purest life. The course of their coming into being and coming to pass. The message left by their legend, you are Jesus, and so am I. The way, the truth, the light. And so is Ray in a galaxy far, far, far away. Uh, Kringle, however, merely represents some wishful and superficial sleight of hand during a measly holiday, the foundation for which is based on a mythology that has captivated the hoi polloi worldwide, burgeoning into a viral infection we like to call religion, which may differentiate somewhat from religious thought, but we'll save that chatter for when the bug house debate comes around where we tackle a more ridiculous philosophical question is, can we really know and therefore argue anything? So, Don made his case for the Middle Eastern Son of God once before, back in Chicago, titling his piece, Jesus Would Kick Santa's Ass. And he lost that fateful night to the mighty righteousness of his argument, it still stands. To quote him, Jesus is the Beatles, Santa is Oasis. Jesus is Bruce Springsteen, Santa is John Cooper Mellencamp. Jesus is the Ramones. Santa is Green Day. Jesus is the black social justice warrior deity. Santa is the old white man who rewards us with momentary distraction and promotes obesity and tooth decay. If Black Lives Matter and so does Me Too, Jesus is the only spokesperson for the holiday. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. Oh, yeah. All right.
looks like that's Dan German. You took that in. Uh, since uh, Charles hasn't made it, we're going to have a compendium of Jessica Pena Kamala, Joe James, and myself. Because you got to have an argument. Sometimes, like uh, when David Kimmel was here, and, uh, and his component did not show up, David Kimmel argued against himself. And we can do that to Dana, but we've done it already. So here is the three of us. Does anybody want to start? You want me to start? Oh, I got something. Okay, oh, all, right. all right. So this is, uh, while well, you start, I will start the time because we only have seven minutes to make this shit up, but we are going to make our best case for Santa and against Jesus. Okay, go. All right. I just got one statement. I never, ever have woken up on Christmas morning and saw presents underneath the Christmas tree and thought, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, when I was a kid, like I said before, my, my father was religious, and um, he asked me to pray, and I, I, never, I never felt close to Jesus ever, but I've always had that anticipation and the connection with Santa, and then on Christmas morning, you go downstairs, and, and everything's there, and when you grow up, you realize that your parents did that for you, and I think that's just so much more special because it's someone who's there. And uh, so Santa, the spirit of Santa is really the love of parents for their children. And that's how I connect with it. I don't want to follow that. <laughs> I don't want to follow it, but let's give a little historical context. Yes, Jesus, it is a celebration of his birth, but it is also a combination of Jesus Christ's birth, which we don't know or probably wasn't December 25th, and some pagan holidays, and, and, and the thing about it, we don't really think about the idea that holidays is holy days, right? So the idea is these are rituals that we perform, and they were really designed for small communities of people. It was not designed for the world. It was a way of taking small communities of people and having them participate for one moment when the harvest was done or when work was done, and just congregate together. That's what holy days really were created. So the holiday of Christmas absolutely over the course of centuries was created around the birth of Jesus Christ. But at some point and that point was sometime around the 1600s, but at some point another figure came to play. Saint Nicholas was a Greek Orthodox saint. He was just a guy. That's what all saints are. Saints are not gods. They're just guys that the Roman Catholic Church said, hey, they're kind of like gods. But St. Nicholas was not a fat, poorly man. In fact, he was gaunt. He was tall and he was skinny. And what St. Nicholas did at a time, and I want you to keep in mind, that today, since 1913, we've had child labor laws. And those child labor laws prevent us from taking small children and putting them to work in factories, doing work that we wouldn't do. I mean, you know, that, that, that's children, that's what they've lost limbs, they died, they were small, they could do those jobs that we couldn't do. Before 1913, children were completely, almost totally used as chattel on almost, in, in almost every society. And St. Nicholas, Nicholas, of the Greeks, noticed, he, he, he saw the children in his 
you know, sort of like his circle of influence, we'll call it, which is a really fucking shitty corporate self-help term, but it is, and he saw them, and what he did as just a regular fucking dude was he gave them presents. He said, you are the most helpless with the least control of your lives. I want to give you a gift so that you feel valued, so that you feel important. So for at least one brief moment between being stuck in a mine because you're small enough to do this, you can find some piece of joy before you die by the time you're eight. And St. Nicholas became a saint because of his giving of gifts. Now here's the thing. He had nothing to do with Christmas. He didn't give a shit about Christmas. All he cared about was giving gifts to children. At some point around the 1600s, St. Nicholas became Santa Claus. Santa Claus comes from the German Sinterklaas, which is part of saying, I'm St. Nicholas, I don't know this. I didn't read Wikipedia too deeply. <laughs> but the thing about it is, at a certain point, the holiday, while begun as Jesus' birthday, changed. And it changed to represent not so much the celebration of perhaps, if you're religious, the man who gave us a second chance at redemption in life, but a man who represented just simple kindness to people that could not have for themselves. And so Santa Claus grew from that point to become a figure that we can, and now we look at the Reagan and Bass, we look at the commercialism, the consumerism, and we think, oh, holly Chris. That's not the origin. The origin is just a man who gave presence to poor children because they had nothing else to give them hope and joy. <laughs> and now Joe James will close out. Right. Yeah, nothing as profound as what these two just said. Uh, I will say this. I think Santa is a better dresser than Jesus. <laughs> he had that plush red outfit with a white trim. The boots and the belt matched. The beard brought it all together. Jesus probably always wore the same clothes in the hot sun. I'm going to say it. Jesus was stinky. <laughs> Anything else? No. All right. That is Santa. All right. And we did it six minutes, just under seven minutes. Kelly, you haven't heard an artist. You've heard it. Come on up. Do they have any questions for any of us? Kelly? <laughs> Enjoyed both pieces. Thank you, everybody, very much. Tonight, I got to give it to Dana German. Dana German! <laughs>
his horrible failure as a human being before throwing down the money he lost. Who was George Bailey? And why do we in the age of cancel culture want to see him escape his tragic fall? First, understand that the film was pretty much critically panned at the time of its release in 1947 and recorded a $525,000 loss. He didn't become the feel-good classic until the 1980s when public television began playing it because it was free to do so. The 1980s, when the world was celebrating problematic films like The Breakfast Club, Wall Street, Risky Business, and Porky's. Second, George Bailey, in his own words. How old are you anyway? 18. 18, while it was only last year, you were 17. You look older with your clothes on. <laughs> George Bailey, you call this a happy family? Why do we have to have all these kids? Third, that George Bailey, his many friends, did not know. George is that guy who graduates high school and then comes back to the high school party to troll recent graduates. He's that guy. At the party, George becomes reacquainted with Mary graduating that night. Mary is smart. She advances to college. But that isn't what interests George walking home. He speaks lines seemingly from the Weinstein couch. How old are you anyway, he literally asks Mary, who replies that she's 18 and wonders if that's too young or too old, Harvey. Later, when he learns he will be stuck in town managing his late father's bank, George drunkenly makes his way to Mary's house, where he shakes her, yells at her, and forcibly kisses her. I suppose a later scene that was deleted where he asks if he can masturbate in front of her. She says nothing, so he does. Was just, you know, that was just something they just said, maybe not ready for a 1947 audience. After George and Mary have married and had children, George releases his workplace stress by screaming at his children and destroying family belongings, incidents that today would be seen as red flags for domestic violence. Now, Annie, if you recall, is the Bailey's family's African-American maid. At one point, George's brother slaps her fanny. All in jest, though one wonders how an older, older minority woman as Annie is might take such sporting if she weren't dependent on a privileged white family for her room and modest income. So George is a sexist, a creep, a sexual assaulter, a potential domestic abuser, and a passive racist. He's also a tragically bad businessman, entrusting the money of the poorest people in Bedford Falls to a known drunk and a man who needed string on his fingers to remember things. You'd think after George caught the drunken Mr. Gower poisoning kids, he learned not to trust alcoholics, but he was far too self-involved to learn that lesson. It all indicates that George checked out. Somewhere around the time, his selfish fucking brother reneged on his promise. George had kept the business running in an agreement with his brother that Carrie would take over after he returned from school. But Carrie and his new fiance, Ruth, had other plans. Ruth tells George her father offered Carrie a job in the research business. While Carrie says nothing's set in stone yet, it hits George that his dreams really are turning to dust. Did Harry truly understand how much George hated him after that? The look of horror 
panic and hopelessness George gets on his face after Harry reveals his casual, I'm in love and have opportunities to go, so go fuck your dreams of world travel, says far more than any words he could have said. When George discovers the $8,000 missing, he loses his shit. It means bankruptcy and scandal in prison. I don't do uh, an impression. Uh, one of us is going to jail and it's not going to be me. George tells the drunken, addled Uncle Billy, making it clear he'd send his uncle up the river if the money doesn't turn up. Finally, when he sees that Potter, a bitter old man with a successful, if not completely cutthroat business, whom he's intentionally alienated throughout the, the entire first half of the film, is going to have him jailed, he decides to commit suicide. Not out of chronic depression, or a chemical imbalance, not out of grief, nor any sort of mental illness he may be suffering. He decides to take his life because that's just easier than taking a breath, figuring out the, where the money went, and solving the problem. His decision to off himself and leave his family and the host of four people in town whose money has evaporated is narcissistic, sociopathic, and selfish to a degree that those friends who bail him out would stop in their tracks and say, what the fuck, George? Instead, he's redeemed. In the unwritten sequel, when George discovers a few months later that Billy has been quietly funneling funds to pay for his drinking problem, he decides to buy a shotgun, kill Mary and the kids, and then turn the gun on himself until Clarence comes back and shows him how Zuzu grows up and creates a strain of agriculture based on the science of flowers that can feed the world. The third unwritten film has George Older, and on trial by the FDIC for financial malfeasance, he plots to wear a suicide bomb to the trial and thus end his troubles, but this time Clarence shows up, slaps the shit out of him repeatedly in the face, and tells him maybe suicide's the right choice. Once called on it, showing himself to be the coward he always was, Bailey turned state's witness against his uncle. In a time when society no longer truly embraces redemption for mistakes. The idea that we can all sit down and feel good about a suicidal, abusive, sexist, racist, avoider of responsibility like George Bailey is out of place. We now look toward punishment instead of rehabilitation. Revenge in lieu of redemption. We no longer forgive or forget. We may have room, a room full of friends, but they don't know what we know. He will never be held accountable for his mistakes. Bailey is a tragic failure and should be canceled. And don't even get me started on the Grinch or Ebenezer fucking Scrooge. Thank you. Now after that, holly jolly filled with joy, peace, ladies and gentlemen, Joe James. George Bailey is a good person. This is, a, this is a slam dunk. He was played by Jimmy Stewart, who himself was a good person. George Bailey saved his little brother Harry's life, who went on to be a war hero by killing as many Japanese people as he could. <laughs> George also saved someone else, like Don mentioned, because uh, Mr. Gower, the drunk, grieving pharmacist, put poison into pill form. George Bailey saved his boss's ass. Gower stopped drinking and, uh, hopefully, learned to not keep jars of poison next to the medicine. Who does that? That's day one of pharmacy school. 
<laughs> medicine here, jars of poison way, way, way over there. Maybe not even in the same room would be my recommendation. Uh, George's relationship with Mary wasn't some love at first sight Hollywood malarkey. It built over time. They grew to love one another. It was earned and lasted, and it was only a little rapey when he was hiding, uh, when she was hiding naked in a bush, and he was holding her robe as some kind of leverage for what? We don't know exactly. Fortunately, his father had a heart attack, and he got him out of there. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's just... It's just so hard to argue something I, I no longer believe. Don Hall is right. George Bailey is not a good person. Uh, he never took a single step outside of Bedford Falls. His family lives in a drafty old house that he used to throw rocks at. His kid's name's Zuzu. <laughs> and it's like short for the demon from the exorcist, Puzzuzu. I just, I can't. He put shredded coconut on ice cream for fuck's sake. That's just horrible. I wish I had never agreed to this. Do you hear me, God? I wish I had never done Bug House. Do you hear me, God? I wish I had never been here and done my piece at Bug House. Your prayers have been answered, Joe Janes. What do you mean? You never did your piece about George Bailey being a good person at the Bug House show. Who are you? My name is... Clarence Oddbody, I'm an angel, second class. By helping you, I'll get my wings. What kind of name is Oddbody, Irish? I'm called Oddbody because, well, take a look. I have a third nipple, my knees bend backwards, and my nutsack looks like a russet potato covered with eyes. Real eyes. The kind that stare at you. I'm hundreds of years old. People were named quite literally back then. <laughs> Just ask Honest Abe Lincoln's Postmaster General, Caleb P. Open Umbrella Anus. <laughs> and you're an angel? That's usually the first question people ask. Yes, I'm an angel, and I granted your wish. You never performed your piece at Bug House. So I can just leave the stage like it never happened? <laughs> like it never happened because it never did happen. Okay, uh, cool. Well, I'm gonna go have a beer. Uh, barkeep, I would like a frosty beverage and perhaps a mulled wine for my angel friend. I can't. I'm no longer a bartender. You never did your piece. Don Hall told everyone what a piece of shit George Bailey was, and that was it. Uh, it convinced me that there's no hope and, uh, that I will never die knowing, uh, and that I will die never knowing what love is. I'm a spinster, and now I'm a librarian. <laughs> but you're right here behind the bar, and Don just did his piece a few minutes ago. It's not my fault your premise is flawed. Now, unless you have a book to return or to check out, please move along. But... <laughs> move along! This isn't happening. Don! Don! Tell me! Tell me this isn't happening! Who are you? <laughs> it's Joe. Joe Janes. Your friend from Chicago. I came to Las Vegas to do Bug House. You don't remember me? I remember you. I'm shunning you. My friend from Joe from Chicago never did Bug House. See, you pray that you never did Bug House, and so... We get it, Clarence. We get it. I was very excited to have you on the show. You're the... <laughs> You're the most brilliant writer I know. 
<laughs> Ruggedly handsome yet sophisticated like Captain Picard and George Clooney had a threesome with cyborg Cary Grant, who carried you to term like a pregnant male seahorse. <laughs> More importantly, you were and had always been my friend. Remember that time I wanted to move because everyone in town thought I was a floozy? You gave me $2,000 and wished me luck. <laughs> Had it not been for you, I would have become a dime a dance guy. I still charge 10 cents a dance. Hand jobs are $2. But I do it because I want to, not because I have to. Not doing your piece of bug house was like someone dug a hole in my heart with a spork and pooped in it. Poop filled with thumbtacks, <laughs> ghost peppers, and old man diapers. I was so distraught from you bailing on the show that I got a migraine, went home, and instead of taking aspirin, I accidentally took poison. How did you accidentally take poison? I keep it right next to the medicine like everyone else does. Nobody does that! Well, I do, and now I'm dead. Thanks. Clarence, Clarence, change it back. Please, change it back. I want to be able to buy beer at Bunkhouse. I want Don to not be dead. I can be okay with people putting shredded coconut on ice cream. Maybe. I'll do my piece at Bunkhouse. Change it all back. Okay, Joe, okay, it's all changed back. Really? Just like that? Just like that. All right. You're not supposed to be ringing the bell at this point, Clarence. That comes later. That's great. Hello, bunkhouse. Hello, old bar. Hello, bartender. Hello, live down hall. I'll tell you why George Bailey is a good person. He always, always put other people before himself. His family, his friends, the people of Bedford Falls. George Bailey was the least selfish person, and he devoted his life to helping people live their dreams. George Bailey had friends, lots of them. He cared about people, and they cared right back, because no man ha who has friends is a failure. Clarence, did you get your wings? No, I'm still waiting for them. I ordered them 20 goddamn minutes ago. <laughs> they stopped serving food when you turned the bar into a library. I'd like my jumbo wings now, please. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Give me my motherfucking wings, bunkhouse. <laughs> and see. <Yeah. laughs> Okay, any questions for either of us? Ryan's got wings in the oven, right? <laughs> All right, so no questions? All right, Kelly. Oh, that was a lot of fun, guys. Um, I gotta give it to Joe. Of course, Joe James! Yes, give him a hand.